Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. most famous song, Sleep, played by Kate Kennedy on cello with Simon Over on piano. And we'll be hearing more of that piece and another little surprise during the course of this podcast where we're blending poetry and music. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Duncan McCargo, a professor at the University of Copenhagen and a host on the Literature Channel. It's my great pleasure today to be joined by Kate Kennedy, the author of Dweller in Shadows, A Life of Ivor Gurney, which is about to be published by Princeton University Press. Kate, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. So Dweller in Shadows is a remarkable book about a remarkable man, but it's also a rather disturbing account of a troubled life. Today, Ivor Gurney's identity is bound up with his reputation as a war poet, a phrase that he apparently liked to capitalize in the later years of his life. But he was also a very accomplished composer, a protégé of Ralph Vaughan Williams at the Royal College of Music. After being being gassed in the trenches, his long-standing mental health problems got far more acute, and Gurney spent his last 15 years incarcerated in an asylum in Kent before dying prematurely of TB. Dweller in Shadows draws on many years of in-depth archival research, drawing on numerous previously unseen sources from Gurney's time in the asylum. Kate, perhaps we could start by asking you how you came to write a book about a poet and a composer whom you obviously hope to bring out of the shadows in which he's been dwelling for too long. Absolutely. Well, I think if I'd known what a task it was, I probably would have thought twice about embarking on it. But I had trained myself as a musician and as a literary critic equally. So when I started working on culture around the First World War period, it struck me that here was this extraordinary opportunity to be able to talk across both genres. I'm fascinated by making connections between music and words. And of course, that's what a song composer does. And that's what Gurney primarily is known for. He's somebody who writes a song one morning and a poem that afternoon and sometimes then sets that poem to music. So in his head, these two genres are not separate at all. And for me, having had the opportunity to study for years and years and years across both subjects, it felt like a perfect fit. But of course, as soon as you dip your toe into the water, you realise quite how deep it is. And and I had no idea at the beginning of my work on Gurney back in 2005 that there was this enormous archive of hundreds and hundreds of documents that were 
unpublished and unseen. There is no other comparable war composer or even probably 20th century writer or musician that has anything like this kind of stash of amazing material that hasn't seen the light of day. And it's because he was locked up and he was silenced and he wasn't being published, he wasn't being performed. So this material just sat there and is only now just starting to be looked at and thought about properly. So I came in on Gurney and and thinking about Gurney right at the beginning of a journey that now a few other academics are undertaking as well. But it really felt like it was an enormous opportunity and, and quite an overwhelming one at times. Absolutely. It seems like a project that was made for you with your shared interest across these two areas of literature and music. For listeners who don't know much about Ivor Gurney, could you tell us something about his background and his life? Sure. So Gurney was born in 1890. He was a Gloucestershire lad. He adored the Gloucestershire landscape, lived it and breathed it. It was his family, really. He was a fantastic musician, very young, from a family that didn't have much in the way of resources. Was a chorister at Gloucester Cathedral, went to the Royal College of Music on a big scholarship, just about kept body and soul together there, and had a breakdown there, uh, which, which is critical because actually this is before the First World War. So in the years before the First World War, he was already struggling mentally And when the war began, he joined up, in fact, in 1915, mostly to hold himself together, to to try and keep himself stable through routine and through hard work and exercise. And to a large extent, it worked. He fought on and off in Flanders and Somme for about 15 months until he was gassed, until he'd really kind of come to the end of what he could cope with, I think. He was invalided back to England and just about managed to cope in society for a further four years, in and out of hospitals, in and out of the Royal College of Music, as you say, supported by Vaughan Williams, who was a lifelong support to him from this point onwards, until it came to a point in 1922 where nobody could cope with his behaviour. He would sit with a cushion on his head to ward off the electrical waves. He believed that he was being interfered with by wireless. Voices were talking to him. And he was going around asking for a revolver with which to shoot himself. And obviously that that can only be put up with for so long. So his fairly unsympathetic brother had him certified and he was locked up in mental hospitals from September 1922 until, as you say, he died of tuberculosis in 1937. So for the vast majority of his adult life, he was writing quite often in a white heat of creativity and churning out music and poetry unlimited paper, nothing else to do all day, desperate to hold on to to his identity and something of himself with no one to hear, writing into a vacuum effectively. So that was Gurney's life. So all that material is really to be discovered and thought about and and is very often his best work. Let me give our listeners a bit of a flavour by reading one of Ivor Gurney's better known poems, Strange Service. Little did I dream, England, that you bore me under the Cotswold hills beside the water meadows to do you dreadful service, here, beyond your borders and your unfolding seas. I was a dreamer ever, and bound to your dear service, meditating deep, I thought on your secret beauty, as through a child's face one may see the clear spirit miraculously shining. Your hills not only hills, but friends of mine and kindly, your tiny knolls and orchards hidden beside the river, muddy and strongly flowing, with shy and tiny streamlets safe in its bosom. 
Now these are memories only, and your skies and rushy sky pools, fragile mirrors, easily broken by moving airs. In my deep heart forever goes on your daily being, and uses consecrate. Think on me too, O mother, who rest my soul to serve you in strange and fearful ways beyond your encircling waters. None but you can know my heart, its tears and sacrifice. None but you repay. So, Ivor Gurney is, of course, one of the First World War poets commemorated in a plaque that's installed in Westminster Abbey, put there in, in 1985. But his name's rather less recognizable than that of, say, the very glamorous Rupert Brooke, the aristocratic Siegfried Sassoon, or remarkably talented Wilfred Owen. How does Gurney's poetry stand up, do you think, in this sort of illustrious and rather tragic literary landscape? Well, it's rather fun, actually. When he's in the asylum, he starts to really think about where he is in relation to yeah. these other war poets. And he makes lists and he includes himself in the top five. And of course, right. he is biased, but nonetheless. And sometimes he's right up there. He's the one, one or two, just to be yes. a bit modest. But, but he's actually about right. What he didn't know is that that is pretty much where he appears in the, the big anthologies that roll out through the 20th century, particularly from sort of you know, 1960s onwards, yes. that define the canon of war poetry as we've received it. But there were editors who published his poetry at the time who described him in one chat particularly as the best of the young men below the horizon. And to me, that's that's exactly <laughs> yes. where Gurney is. He is, you know, he, it's like he has a glass ceiling all the time. He is always slightly below the horizon. Right. Whether it's because he's talking across two genres or whether it's because he's locked up or whether it's because he, he doesn't make life easy for himself. He doesn't really play the game. He doesn't know how to progress in an institution. All those kind of things. He never wins the prizes. But he is a genius. And what he writes is extraordinary. And he was recognised by people like Edmund Blunden, you know, another great war poet, put together a, a collection of Gurney's poetry. It's a fairly eccentric collection, but he was fascinated by him. And there were many other great poets who recognised what Gurney was. And what's really incredible about Gurney is that he remains a war poet. People like Graves say goodbye to all that, as the, the, the title of his book yes. um, suggests, because they can. Then they don't want to hang on. They don't want to live being a war poet in a kind of groundhog day of the trenches. They want, during the 20s, to move on and develop and become something else and put the war behind them. For Gurney, there is no future. So he cannot afford to let go of the war. So he keeps being a war poet. And actually, the poem that you just read, Strange Service, is a fantastic poem, but that was written in the trenches on the spot. It's thinking through the complexities of this very complicated, difficult, tortured relationship to England, the mother, to the landscape, yes. to the debt that England owes him for sending him out beyond her encircling womb-like fluid waters, you know, this wonderful female mm. imagery, and the resentment that the soldier rightly feels for that and craving for protection. It's all there, but that's early stuff. When he revisits this material in the 20s from the asylum, when it's in his imagination, his war poetry is on another level and it's extraordinary stuff. Is there another war poet who is also 
carrying on being a war poet in 1925? Probably not. And so there's a massive opportunity there to think through how the war changes in relation to memory and experience and in relation to what your future may or may not hold. He's a very, very interesting voice. And the other thing that we haven't yet really had the chance to assess is the fact that he's a modernist. He's a great English modernist. We don't know most of this modernist stuff. You know, Wilfred Owen develops his style to fit the material that he is obliged to talk about. Strange meeting would not have happened had he not been in the trenches. His poetry develops very fast to keep up with the kind of fragmentation and the trauma of it all, of the abject, these things that he's trying to express and poetry fails him. He has to create a new way of expressing it. And Gurney is just doing that by nature. You know, he is constantly wrestling with being on the edge of madness, wrestling with the fact that he is incarcerated, trying to express emotions that are very difficult to hold together with a kind of an aura of suffering underneath his later work, particularly. It enacts his own disintegration, but in incredibly clever and interesting and nuanced ways. And so it's modernist war poetry. Now, if that stuff had been put alongside Owen and, and Sassoon, I mean, he leaves mm-hmm. Sassoon standing, you know, then yeah. we would see him very differently. But it's not yet all out there to be assessed fully. Now, I can see there's quite an agenda ahead here for more work to <laughs> oh, be yes. done, whether, whether you have the uh, appetite to continue with this or whether uh, this will have to be done by some other people. But there's oh, This is decades of work. And there are right. Oxford University Press is actually very slowly publishing volumes of all the unpublished poems. It's uh, The first volume is out so far, and there's at least another four, I think, to go. So it is a life's work for, for people. Right. And the opportunity for me as a biographer is not necessarily editing reams and reams of manuscripts, it is actually finding the right context for them. Because one of the things I was so struck by is that his life is very, very extreme. He is in a trench and then he's in a lunatic asylum. Now, it doesn't get more extreme than that generally, unless you were living in a pothole or something, or on on the moon. These are very different atmospheres in which he writes and that he writes about and that inform his work. And so... For me, it's about getting that setting right for him. What does it mean to write about your own madness? What does it mean to write from within an asylum to speak for a generation of men who you are desperate to make into a community around you, but the next day they could be dead? How does his work speak of that precariousness? And so that's the project for me. And I leave it to others to come after me to edit all these poems, because that is quite a job and the music, of course. Yes, indeed. Well, perhaps we can move on to talk a bit about the music. Mm. As we've already mentioned, one of the most impressive aspects of the book is the way that you seem to move seamlessly between discussing Gurney's poetry and his abilities as a composer. So to get some of the flavour of Gurney's compositions, we're now going to listen to a song called Seven Meadows, which is a rare example of Gurney setting his own words to music. It's a wistful little poem that he wrote in the trenches, bidding goodbye to the Gloucestershire landscape that he loved and assumed he would never see again, ending, and who loves joy as he that dwells in shadows. Do not quite forget me, O Seven Meadows. Here it is, sung by Dominic Bevan and accompanied by Simon Over and specially recorded for this podcast. Oh, 
a bit on what kind of composer Gurney was? Do you think that his songs, his chamber pieces have stood the test of time? So Gurney was trained at the Royal College at a time when it was all about the big romantic German composers. It was Brahms and and Mm -hmm. Beethoven and Bach, obviously not romantic, but the the three Bs effectively. And he was brought up on that diet. So he has one foot very much in that camp. His chamber music sounds like Brahms a lot. His songs sound like Schubert. In fact, he looked like Schubert. He was, (laughs) there's one um, little note in his archive that I found, which was fascinating. A wonderful rabbit hole to go down where actually he believed he was a descendant of Schubert and his, his grandfather's father was unknown and mm-hmm. his great-grandmother was from a very noble family who it may or may not have hosted Schubert and visited Schubert. And so he had this little glimmer of hope that he was actually an illegitimate descendant of Schubert, and, <laughs> which, which is rather fun. And he went to archives to try and look this up, desperate to be standing in the great man's shoes. But actually, what he really does that is so much like Schubert is have an innate sense of the aura of language, not just how to word paint. He doesn't just give you a stormy, background for words describing a storm. He inhabits the text from within, which is a very, very rare quality. Using every element of the piano, orchestrally coloured very often, he writes as if he has an orchestra at his disposal when it's just a keyboard, in order to to nuance and colour and and highlight so deftly what the poetry is doing, pulling out rhythms and manipulating them in the way that perhaps only really a poet could do. And he does have this in common with Schubert. His work is quite experimental at times. And again, this is a perennial problem for anybody grappling with Gurney, that once once you're certified, once you have this huge stigma of madness, mm. whatever that means, and I use the right. term very loosely here, but uh, that's a whole other debate. Then whenever you do anything a little bit out there, a little bit eccentric, whenever you put a slightly strange chord progression in or you end up in a key that you weren't expecting, people assume it's it's a bit mad. <laughs> and right. if you're Scriabin or Stravinsky, it would be absolutely fine. But, but for Gurney, with his history, it's you know, until fairly recently has always been frowned upon. And there is always this question mark, you know, is this stuff good enough? Is it disintegrating? Is it crazy? And and actually, it's his work is extremely interesting. And, and what we learn over the decades as we watch how other musicologists and literary critics have fallen foul of this judging the quality trap is that we have to let these pieces stand or, or fall of their own accord, because what we think is great now or mad will not be great or mad to the next generation and to the next. So what we find difficult to contemplate 
is very standard for somebody in 50 years' time. But basically, his music is fairly well behaved. He goes to all sorts of interesting places. He takes you on a journey harmonically. In the same way as he does in his poet, he, he leads you by the hand. You think you're in one place, but there's always a sense of slippage, whether it's between poetic ideas and association in this very modernist way, or whether it's moving from keys to keys that you really wouldn't expect to be in and then back again. But it, it makes sense within its own terms. It's wrong footing, but it, there is a logic to it. And that is one of his charms, I think, not a problem. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell from your answers to the questions so far, Kate, that you're raring to get to the last third of the book and the, the period <laughs> in the asylum. That's the period that really excites you. And you've already alluded to all these sources that you've been able to access that were previously unpublished. Mm. Maybe you could say something about what these sources are, how you access them and what you've been able to do with them. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have for many years worked on the First World War, and I also loved researching that part of the book as well and trying to track through the army records exactly where Gurney was hour by hour across yeah. the trenches. But as you say, the asylum, my goodness, what a, it's, it's a terrible, terrible, tragic period of his life, and it's desperately sad working on it. But also, it was utterly fascinating and has led me into whole new worlds of research mostly because it's very hard to find any kind of community of voices against which to situate Gurney. And, and as I said, as a biographer, my primary concern really is to put him in the right place, you know, to explicate these facts, to present them in ways that make sense and will somehow enhance without colouring our understanding of what he created. And when you've got an asylum patient who is largely unpublished, largely unheard, and in this very extreme environment, it's very, very difficult to get a context for that and to get a community of other voices. So when Gurney writes reams and reams of letters of appeal, mm. as he calls them, letters of appeal yes. or chance of for death or chance of release. He has used to been writing to everybody in the known universe, oh, begging oh, them to get and him beyond. out. Yeah, yes. I mean, some, of, some of them. I mean, how, how on earth you'd post them if you even tried. You know, the, the army of Bapom, the, the women of New England, the Metropolitan yes. Police, they've all got their letters. Right. He will write to anybody of authority. So and this, this is a prime example. He writes these repetitious CV-like mm -hmm. lists of his, his life. It's, again, fascinating material for a biographer. He's writing his autobiographies until the point uh, that he gets to the asylum. And then he, it's almost as if an explosion happens in his head and language fails him. And he, he slips into hyperbole and great dark tides of evil overwhelm him. And, and it's all about darkness and evil and kind of Old Testament baddies. And, and But previously, we've had minute detail of little events of his life, very acutely observed. So this fascinating fault line runs through his account of his own life. Is that unique? Is that very standard? You know, what you need to do is to be able to find archives of other asylum patients and put these in a correct context rather than thinking, well, what on earth do we do with these crazy manuscripts, hundreds yes. and hundreds of letters that have no obvious you know, address possible and go on these kind of rants for pages and pages that are all, you can, you can write them yourself once you've read a hundred or so of them, that's yes. the same stock phrases. But then as I researched the asylum and looked in the, the London Metropolitan Archives, which is where the City of London Mental Hospital in Dartford, which is where Gurney was, where all their archives are now kept, you find that actually as a, as a private patient, someone for whom your relatives and friends pay for you to be there, which is what Gurney's status was, 
the asylum was legally obliged to display posters in the day room to say, mm. you have the right to write a letter of appeal to the Secretary of State, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, the Lord Chancellor. The list is absurd. And it's, it's right. basically that Gurney is pretty much taking it down you know, and, and writing to them, doing exactly what he's told to do utterly sane, very sensible, and lots of other patients write letters of appeal for release, etc., um, in a very similar fashion to Gurney's. So all of a sudden, within a community, within a context, we have a rationale for this, and we can start looking at what these documents tell us about how he perceived his own life, what was important to him, which events he selects. Of course, all gold dust for, for a biographer. You know, what, what did it feel like to be Gurney presenting Gurney? And, and what does he hold on to in the face of a future that is no future, effectively? Right. And where are most of the really interesting unpublished documents that you found located? They're all bundled together in Gloucester in the public records office. Yes. When I first started working on them, they were in the, the library in Gloucester, but they are now, now in the public records office in endless quantities of box files. Gurney, of course, writing in the asylum doesn't really care about his biographer or any editors, no. so he doesn't bother <laughs> dating most of them. Right. In fact, his handwriting <laughs> deteriorates to something that yes. resembles Sanskrit and by, by right. the last sort of 10 years or so. So they are a serious challenge, and quite often we're dating them by seeing how they fold, which envelopes they've come out of, which notebooks yes. he's got at the time, this kind of thing. It's, it's real detective work. But they are there. However, there are definitely a lot that have been lost. In fact, some that have been burnt. And there's a very sad little slip of paper in one of these boxes saying, it, it, for asylum letters, these letters of appeal again, saying these are samples of a much bigger body of work. They are patterns of incoherence and the rest have been burnt. So right. whoever it was who did that, possibly the wife of the composer Gerald Finzi, Joy Finzi, who actually did mm -hmm. a huge amount to help Gurney's reputation after he died, but this wasn't perhaps her finest hour if it was, if it was Joy, felt that these were patterns of incoherence, which of course... It's a contradiction in terms anyway, and a really fascinating little phrase to use. But what was burnt, we don't know. I've met the son of one of Gurney's doctors who said yeah. that he remembers seeing manuscripts that Gurney had given his father, but they were lost in a family flood. So what were they? You know, music, he believes. But they, we don't know whether we, we know of the existence of those songs or chamber music, whatever it was. It may be that's a whole load of other music that will never be heard of now. So there, there are all kinds of missed opportunities, but what exists and what we know of is in Gloucester. And once you can work out which way up it all goes and read any yes. of it, it, it's all there to be read. But it is quite a challenge. It's not a friendly archive, I think it's fair to say. Right. Let me read one passage from one of these unpublished archival documents that you've found, which might give our listeners a little bit of a flavour here. And this is a passage that Gurney created in his own reimagining of Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, a speech given by Prospero. Be sure this is pleasure to me, though they have sinned and cast me out, yea, beastly from my adored city. Cast me, as twere a beggar, out of all my cares, rare as prayer, books, virginals, clarinet, embraced to lose my power in a night, to go over sea, hidden, stowed under, duke of the time's treasures, to lie in a dark hold, reft of all, friends gone from me, 
in danger with no light till at sea safe from anger and courtesy they led by some sorcery past all prayer or detection dazzled by lying promise set me down and my dear daughter we can see a clear analogy between <laughs> prospero being cast off onto an island and gurney himself feeling abandoned and bereft of all the things that gave him comfort in his former life as he's incarcerated. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, this is a case in point too. He having the audacity to rewrite Shakespeare. He, in fact, there is a wonderful little note in his medical records that the doctor has written saying the patient believes he is Shakespeare. Yes. Now, obviously, that's mad. <laughs> However, right. what isn't mad is to think. How, where do I fit in the canon of literature? How can I identify with great figures who have similarly been isolated, who are artistic, sensitive, wise people who have been cast out by society? How do I relate to them and how can I make a creative identification with them? And that's what he's doing here. It's a very sane and sensible thing to do. And plenty of people have built on Shakespeare or added to Shakespeare. Or one of the Georgians rewrote King Lear. He only knew about these plays. And what I realised only very recently, speaking to the archivist of Dartford Asylum, was that there was a very popular theatre group within the asylum. So Gurney, when he starts writing plays in 1927 or so, including this bit from his Tempest, is probably pretty much on the same corridor as patients and doctors who are wanting to stage plays, would be very happy to be working through some scripts with him. They're all there on site. He might have even joined them. We don't know. So why not rewrite The Tempest for the asylum effectively? And of course, it's exactly what you do as a song composer. You inhabit a text, you take somebody's yeah. words, and they could be Shakespeare, and you stand in their shoes and you see the world through their eyes and you wrestle it into something different and you add your own slant on it. It's, it's the same principle. Yes, you say somewhere in the book that he had an abiding passion for close identification with great writers and musicians. Mm, yeah. And sometimes the close identification does transgress into something, yeah, that isn't entirely sane, but nevertheless <laughs> is also very, very fruitful, it appears. Absolutely. And it, it's one of the characteristics of Gurney. It's one of the things that makes him great and is also probably his downfall is that he doesn't do boundaries. <laughs> he, no. is, he is boundless. He tramps through the meadows through the night. He lies in the mud in the reed beds to compose. He writes by candlelight. He, he's never quite sure where he lives and he's very uncontainable in, in every possible way. You know, there's moments in his earlier life where he's playing the organ in Gloucester Cathedral and the light falls through the beautiful stained glass and he goes, he kind of throws his music down and goes, oh God, I must go to Framelode, which is one of, the, one of the villages on the edge of Glotto. And off he goes for three days. <laughs> yes. And that, that is so gurney. And of course it's bonkers, but it's also glorious, but it's very hard to sustain life in normal, in inverted commas, society when that is your temperaments. And yet it allows him to make connections we wouldn't dream of in his work. And it allows him to inhabit others' identities because his is so fluid and he has wonderful amorphous ability to draw in anything, whether it's the, the voices of his comrades in the trenches or telescope himself back through time into the Roman communities by picking up a coin from a ploughed field in Gloucestershire and suddenly he's back with the Romans who once inhabited yes. that bit of landscape and that nothing is off limits to him and neither is being Shakespeare. And I, I, rather, I rather respect it. No, 
Absolutely. I have to confess, I spent a few days in Knapsbury, one of the hospitals that Gurney was briefly in. I was neither a patient nor a staff member, but I was there as part of a a volunteer project entertaining the patients over New Year in 1983. Wow. I have abiding memories of those echoing Victorian tiled corridors and this palpable sense of what it was to be in an institution. And really, Mm. 10 days was quite enough. But to imagine somebody of Gurney's extraordinary sensitivity and imaginative capabilities incarcerated in in Dartford, which seems to have been a much worse physical environment than the relatively agreeable conditions of Knapsbury for 15 years. It just beggars belief what it must have done to him. He wasn't in a great state when he arrived, but how could he have kept it together in those circumstances? It's really, really hard to imagine. But it's and and again, one of the things that I've I'm almost ready to write a second book about it. It's, yes, it, you never stop developing perspectives on on these matters. So so Gurney quite enjoyed being in Knapsbury in yes. St Albans. It was it was in the, the those four years before he was locked up for good right. and he'd come back from the trenches and he could go and write a violin sonata on the grass outside St Albans Abbey and it was it was all fairly congenial. But yeah, but exactly as you say, and so many of his friends said. You know, Adeline Vaughan Williams, Vaughan Williams' first wife, said he feels like he is so terribly sane in his insanity and surely it would be kinder to just let him go out into the fields, even if he kills himself, for one right. day than be locked up here. And then other friends say this is a place, that Gurney says this is a place one can go mad in. I mean, what a what an ironic little comment <laughs> right. and, so, and, yeah. and how right he is. <laughs> but, yes. And yeah, just, just the other day, in, in the middle of making a, a documentary for the BBC about Gurney in the asylum and about these unpublished manuscripts, I spent the day going around the buildings of Dartford Asylum, which are now incredibly nice looking flats. It's like a country hotel sort of spa retreat. It's it's bizarre with the archivist and the way that she presents the facts that I know made me feel like I was going on some kind of open day tour of some Mm -hmm. extremely exclusive public school. I was ready to sign up to join it. It was really bizarre and so utterly discombobulating because I started thinking, well, gosh, perhaps I have to rewrite at least 300 pages of the book and I can withdraw it before it even comes out because as far as she's concerned it is a country a country hotel you know there are workshops there's the farm there's entertainments every five minutes again he's got lots of friends he's a real character and that the staff and the patients all come out to pay their respects to his coffin as it leaves he's loved and he's seen and he's heard and it's a beautiful place with these wonderful grounds that he could roam freely in pretty much that's not hell on earth that's really rather nice he doesn't have the pressure of having to survive in society and, and grabble together enough to eat which was a struggle for him he's got fresh food from the farm that he's picked himself it sounds sounds really fun and then you think okay but what does gurney say about it right and, and to him it is a hell on earth and to his friends exactly. it's horrifying yeah and so but all these very very different jarring perspectives are all simultaneously true and that is once the, the challenge and the opportunity and the problem for a biographer is how you wade your way through these very different views the doctor's official accounts of gurney gurney's crazy hyperbolic dark tides of evil overwhelming him like a flood etc etc but no detail very little detail about the asylum life the archivist's view of it as some kind of sort of public school paradise and somewhere within that there's gurney and then there's what he writes about it so yeah it's perhaps was one of the better environments if he had to be locked up somewhere 
it wasn't a bad place to be, but yet there would have been much, much better places. And the absolute ideal was that he wasn't locked up at all in the first place. And of course, had he had the schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever it was now, there would have been medication. He would of have course. been able to be managed in society and to keep being probably a very great and interesting presence to watch. And he would have been a great modernist. He would have been yes. kind of trailblazing in music and literature in society, contributing. And he would be a big name now. I wouldn't have to be doing this kind of active no. recovery and right. restitution that's this, that some of his his work still needs. It's really interesting to imagine how different things could have been. When yeah. I first read about your book, I immediately started thinking about John Clare. And we get yeah. a little epigram from John Clare and one or two passing references. It seems like you're not convinced that Gurney ever was familiar with the work of John Clare. I felt like someone could write a comparative piece on these two English poets. Do you have Absolutely. any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, there's a PhD or a dissertation <laughs> yeah. waiting to happen right. there. It hasn't there already is. happened. There I'm is. sure it has. But John Clare, of course, was a wonderful nature poet and he was in an asylum, although he roamed very freely. You know, he had access to the countryside, but he was contained within an asylum, potentially in quite a positive way, I think. Yes. So there are parallels and there are these moments where Clare writes and and you could believe it was Gurney. You know, this little bit that I quote, I think, at the beginning of the book called Self-Identity by Claire, where he writes, who or what I am, no one knows. I am the self-consumer of my woes. Mm. That is so Gurney. That, who, who are you writing to? You're writing into a vacuum. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. No one's hearing this work. I am simply writing to self-consume and to to exercise, but also if you can't exercise the experience, as I say, you can't say goodbye to all that because then what have you got? So it is a self-consumption, this endless revisiting and reanimating memory and landscape that's inaccessible to you and recreating your own past through your work in order to stay alive and to stay being the person that you were and to hold on to the things that mean something to you. It's uh, this idea of self-consumption is a fascinating one. And had Gurney known Claire, and and a lot of Claire's work had a huge delay before it was published as well, like Gurney's, which is why Gurney probably wasn't familiar with him. But had he known him, I think he would have found a kindred spirit, certainly. Let's hope I can be doing a podcast on that book in a a couple of years. (laughs) Watch this Uh, space. That's right. You have been working on this project for a long time, and I know that as Associate Director of the Oxford Centre for Life Writing, you're professionally engaged in matters related to biography and life writing. So I'm sure there must be something else in the works. What what on earth are you going to do next, Kate? <laughs> well, it's uh, I, I have been engaged on this project for far too long, but I, I have also written three other books in the meantime yes. whilst working on this. So not just Gurney, but nonetheless, right. I mean, it was a, an enormous amount of work to get through. The book that I'm writing at the moment is called The Silent Cello, and it's a group biography of experimental biography tracing um, it's, it's basically an act of object biography, tracing cellists and cellos that in some ways have oh. disappeared and trying to understand how we tell stories, how we hold on to people through through their instruments effectively. You know, a, a cello is a kind of wooden torso. It's the nearest thing uh-huh. to, a, to a human body. So a cello that sank in a shipwreck and was completely destroyed, right. a Stradivarius, and, put, and pieced together in, from soggy matchsticks when other bodies weren't recovered. A cello that was rescued from the Nazis when the cellist disappeared 
but now, now has vanished and I'm trying to find it. A cellist who survived Auschwitz, but her cello disappeared at the same point that her parents did. And I'm trying to track her cello. She's still alive. I'm working mm. with her on that. And the first female solo cellist in the 1830s and 40s who made this incredible journey right across Siberia with her, what is actually now the most valuable Stradivarius in the world, for over a year I... until she died there and is somewhere, but nobody knows where. Although the cello is now the centerpiece of the Stradivarius Museum in Cremona. So I'm having a lot of fun playing around with ideas of voice and how we look at an instrument, how we experience it, what what stories, what ghosts does it contain, this kind of thing. It's great fun. And I'm going on their journeys. It's mm. quite, quite a challenge during COVID. Crossing Siberia yes. with a cello is not right up there in terms of the easy not things too to practical do. But, uh, at the moment. No. I, I, I have high hopes <laughs> of the next few Right. Weeks. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And we certainly have to meet again to talk about that book when it comes out. As soon as I'm allowed to do the travelling, I will yes, put it in the diary. Yes, I would love right. to tell you more. Thank you so much, Kate, for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. I hope that we've helped to bring Ivor Gurney out into the bright daylight where he belongs. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Duncan. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. We're going to end this podcast with a recording of Ivor Gurney's piece, Sleep, which is his best known song. This is performed by Kate Kennedy on cello and Simon Over on piano. It's a piece that he wrote while still an undergraduate at the Royal College of Music in 1914.
I'm Duncan McCargo. I've been in conversation with Oxford academic Kate Kennedy, the author of Dweller in Shadows, A Life of Ivor Gurney, which will be published on the 15th of June by Princeton University Press. You've been listening to the New Books Network Literature Channel.